0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Maybe saying my Bible won't open to anywhere, but Matthew chapter 10. But don't panic, we still have a long way to go. Matthew chapter 10. We're looking this morning at verses 34 through 42. This is the conclusion of one of the discourses that we find in Matthew, one of the Distinctives of Matthew's gospel is these several uh, discourses of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount being one, uh, this address to his disciples, and then others uh, yet to come. And Jesus says in verse 34, Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your grace as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes to the vistas of truth that you have here for us in this passage this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Voice of the Martyrs magazine tells the story of Lana, 19-year-old young lady raised in a Egyptian Muslim home, and from early childhood she was taught to hate Christians. And one day a Muslim schoolmate of hers asked her to join her listening to a Christian radio broadcast. And they did. They listened and they actually wrote to the hosts to try to provoke them with uh, questions that they thought Christians could not answer. And Lana was surprised to receive a reply from the host that uh, answered her questions in a loving and gracious way. And she said, he didn't attack me. And I found myself liking what he wrote, I read his letter several times a day. And eventually, she managed to meet the host of the radio program, he spoke to her of Jesus. He gave her a Bible, uh, and not long afterwards, she became a Christian. Her family was not pleased, to say the least. His father beat her savagely for the first time ever. She was not allowed to eat with her family because they saw her as an infidel, Uh, She was not even allowed to wash her clothes with her family's clothes because they saw her as unclean. One night, Lana's father caught her listening to this Christian radio broadcast, and in a fit of rage, he threw her out of the house. And she called the next morning, begging him to come home. I told him I had no money. She said, where could I go? He warned me not to call again. He said his daughter was dead. Well, she had no money, she had no home, so she spent her nights sleeping on trains, and eventually she was able to get a job with a small Christian bookstore. Working there, one day a well-dressed man entered the bookstore and asked her if she would step outside to help him, and she did. When she followed him out to the street, he shoved her inside his truck, locked it, closed the door behind her, uh, drove her to the national security office where he uh, detained her for three days. The man interrogated her. He demanded to know who baptized her. Lana was a new believer. She had not been baptized, and she really didn't even understand baptism. She said, I told him I didn't know what he was talking about. He beat me brutally and even shaved my head. He broke my leg, and I fell to the floor. He left her alone for some time, came back to her, asked why she wasn't cooperating. She said, you'll understand once God removes the scales from your eyes. Well, he was enraged with her, and he took her and slammed her head against the wall until she lost consciousness. When she came to, she was back in the custody of her parents, and they, together with the National Security Police, tried to convince her to abandon her Christian profession and return to Islam. She refused to do so, and for her own safety, she left home and went into hiding. Jesus, in this section this discourse we've been studying has already warned his disciples that we could expect hostility in reaction to who we are as Christians we saw in uh, verse 16 where he said behold i'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves in other words we're not going out into a benign arena we're going out into a place where we can expect to meet with hostility we should not be surprised when we're met with the anger uh, and disdain of others because of who we are and because of who Christ is. Uh, Lana is certainly one in a a long line of believers in Muslim countries, but in other places as well, who have suffered persecution for their faith. Well, he's already warned us to be prepared, and he's even... uh, already reminded us that that persecution may well come from within our own families. Uh, Back in um, verses 17 and 18, he mentions governors and kings and so forth. And then in verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And so Jesus finishes this address to his disciples, and he finishes this address to us by reminding them and reminding us of this truth. When the biblical Jesus enters in, when he comes on the scene, he always provokes a response. He always provokes a response. And this passage describes three responses particularly that we need to be aware of and need to to consider. First is the response of division over Jesus, look at verse thirty-four. Jesus said, "Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth." Now, why would He say that? Well, part of the expectation for the Messiah was that He would usher in a time of, of great peace. And you say, "Well, you know, Jesus is the Prince of Peace." In the Old Testament, Isaiah speaks of Jesus; He's the Prince of Peace. Doesn't He bring peace? Why would Jesus say, "Don't think I've come to bring peace"? To the earth. And I think that expression, that phrase, to the earth, is significant. You know, we celebrate at Christmas the birth of Jesus and the message of the angels, peace on earth and goodwill to men, you know, goodwill toward men. The old King James rendering, which is, for all of my regard for the King James version, is somewhat misleading. Both the text and the rendering, in more modern translations, tend to render it. Uh, not quite in, in as as metrical a way in terms of how it reads, but more accurate in its meaning as to its meaning. Peace on earth and goodwill to those with whom God is pleased. And so the idea that Jesus has come just to bring peace all over the world to everybody is, is not biblical. He does bring peace in terms of bringing peace between fallen sinners and a holy God. He bridges that chasm. That divide. He does also bring peace between people, among people, between people, uh, in terms of the cross. When people become Christians, you know, Paul speaks of that in Ephesians. He speaks of that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that is removed by the cross. So that you had Jew and Gentile in Christian churches worshiping God in Christ together. And that's true today. In in the cross, you have people of various races, various ethnic backgrounds, various political philosophies, whatever it might be. And all of those divisions are broken down by the cross, and people come together and are united in Jesus through his cross. And their common commitment to him as their king, their faith in him as their savior. So yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace in that regard. But the idea that Jesus comes in... And you know, almost as though he's some tranquilizer, and suddenly life becomes sedate and wonderful is just wrong. That's not biblical. Jesus says, "I have not come to bring peace, but a sword." Sword there is a symbol of of hostility, a symbol of conflict. One of the responses when Jesus enters into the picture that he uh, provokes is division. He does divide. People And he specifically names some ways that people are divided. Look at verse 35. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, to set a man against his father was to strike a blow at the closest and most honored relationship, that of the children to their father. The father is the head of the home, and it was almost unthinkable in a Jewish culture, that the son would somehow be against his father. Part of the offense, by the way, in the parable of the uh, prodigal son, is he goes to his father and asks for the inheritance and leaves. You know, we see that and we think, well, that's, that's kind of hasty. You know, well, in a Jewish culture, they would, they would see that and think, that's just, that's horrible, that's an abomination, you don't do that sort of thing. You honor your father and he dishonored his father, and that was a terrible thing. Well, so it is here. Now, kind of in the background is the assumption here that the divide is created by the unbeliever. As Christians, as Jesus said, we're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're not looking to create conflict with our father or with our unbelieving mother or whatever it might be. Uh, the assumption is that the hostility begins and continues on the side of the un believer. And so this division that comes in, uh, daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The daughter-in-law became part of her husband's family, and she was to look up to her mother-in-law with respect and affection. And for there to be a division there would leave the bride, the wife, the daughter-in-law very lonely in a Jewish culture. And so we need to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here, and we certainly do. We have close family ties. Some of you have suffered, maybe suffering, and maybe one day will suffer, uh, breaches in family relationships because of your faith in Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We don't need to have some misguided or, or naive idea that somehow everything's going to be okay when we become a Christian. Some difficulties may come up, including these kinds of divisions, even where we would least expect or at least want these kinds of divisions. I think Jesus mentions family relationships because those particularly can be the most painful. And so Jesus says, Don't think I've come to bring peace but a sword. Uh, And he's he's referring to that passage we read in Micah when he says, uh, A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Enemy is a strong word, but it's not too strong a word. Lana's story is not unique. Even in this country, uh, where family members, parents, a brother, a sister, is not merely upset, but actually becomes an enemy toward the believer. But that's the first response that we find here. And in, in many ways, it's a frightening one. It's not a desirable one, but it is a real one that our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world today face these kinds of disruptions. And perhaps some of you. But Jesus tells us about that. But then there's another response that he mentions here that goes more directly to us. If you were in that kind of circumstance, you're faced with a choice, aren't you? My father, or my mother, or Jesus. Like Lana, being put in a position where you have to choose one or the other. Well, Jesus says here that another response that he comes to provoke is that of loyalty toward him. We must be loyal to Jesus over all others. He must have the priority. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And and what he's saying here is that the person who actually loves another person, even a close relation like a father or mother or child, is not fit to be Jesus' disciple. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus comes first. He is of a higher priority even than those closest human relations that we have. Our loyalty is to Him above all. Uh, In another place, just uh, in one of the other Gospels, Luke chapter 14, it's put this way in very strong terms. Uh, 14 verse uh, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That passage has troubled people, saying, well, you know, why does Jesus want me to hate my father? Well, we need to recognize the use of the term. The contrast is, is what it's implying. It's like when, in Romans 9 when, when the Lord says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. It's not necessarily saying that the Lord feels all kinds of, of loathing and contempt for Esau. It's saying that he has preferred Jacob over him. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And Matthew captures it correctly. The point is not that we're to dishonor the fifth commandment and violate that respect and honor we're to have toward our parents, and even love and affection. The point is Christ comes first. Yes, Jesus wants us to love our parents. Yes, Jesus wants us to love our children. But Jesus insists that we love him most. Now, that may not be as harsh as it seems. Because the fact is, Husbands, if you love Christ more than your wives, you will love your wives more than you otherwise would. And wives, if you respect and love Christ more than you do your husbands, you will love and respect your husbands more than you otherwise would. And children, if you love Christ more than you love your parents, you will love and respect your parents more than you otherwise Would Because you see, loving Christ first makes us better parents, makes us better children, makes us better brothers and sisters. So loving Christ first means that we'll be able to love one another the way that we should. So this isn't quite as bleak or dire as, as it may seem. Yes, Christ wants us to love one another as families. But he's acknowledging that in a case where the division comes because of faith in him, we must prefer Christ even over our dearest and closest relations. And Jesus himself taught this and demonstrated this. Remember, his mother and brothers came to him, and the people said, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? It's the ones who hear my word and do it. Jesus was acknowledging that those who trust in him, those who follow him, those who are his people, his sheep, through faith in him, are closer to him, even than physical, fleshly relationships. And there have been no shortage of believers who basically lost their family because of their faith in Christ, but they find a new family, a larger family of those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and who love them, and help them, and help them address the pain and deal with the pain of having lost their earthly families. So loyalty to Jesus comes even above family, and also comes even above our own life. And Jesus calls us to loyalty. It's over any other human relationship, and it's over even over our life itself. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Jesus used that expression, take his cross, we need to recognize that to this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has said nothing about his going to the cross. So we tend to make that association of Jesus' crucifixion. But at this point, his disciples really had no notion of that whatever, as far as Jesus was concerned. Now, when Jesus said, take up your cross, they knew exactly what that meant. That meant you had a one-way ticket outside the city wall, and you weren't coming back. It meant you were being led out to be crucified by the Romans. So Jesus says, he who does not take his cross and follow me but that expression take his cross meant death they understood that though not necessarily in Jesus case at this point they understood it meant to die a death whoever does not basically die and follow me is not worthy of me a willingness to die for christ is part of being a disciple of christ and he he elaborates further in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Well, Jesus, I don't want to do that. I want, I want to pursue my life. I want to pursue my agenda. I want to pursue my own happiness and pleasure. Jesus says if you do that, if you live for your life here, you'll lose it. And there are a lot of people who are pursuing their own lives here in this world who will lose it in eternity. But he goes on whoever to say whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, certainly for many believers, that has been literal. Uh, and finding eternal life, uh, not because of the merits of being a martyr, but because they died as a martyr because they truly trusted in Jesus. But, but Jesus, I think, is, is more to the point for us, speaking in terms of losing our life in discipleship, in following Christ. The paradox here is that if you live for your own happiness, you're not going to find it. But if you live for Christ, you'll find happiness. That's the paradox. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Whether we want to look at it just in terms of this life and the the enjoyment of this life. Enjoyment is one of those things that is derived indirectly. If we pursue it, we saw this in Ecclesiastes, it's elusive. We come up short. We come up empty. But if we pursue Christ, we find that in our discipleship and following him, there is enjoyment, there is joy, there is life. But it also points us toward the life to come. The person who turns from Christ and pursues his own life, will not have eternal life. He'll be in hell. But the person who follows Christ, dying daily, putting Christ's priorities above his own, and even, even if necessary, dying physically for his sake, will find life in this world and in the world to come. And so the second response, the first was division over Jesus that occurs even among families and certainly in other relationships, but Jesus uses families as an illustration. Loyal to Jesus, to Jesus, even over family members, even over life itself. But then the third response is a little more encouraging, and it's that of reception of Jesus. Um, not everybody's going to be hostile. Not everybody's going to persecute them. It's it's not everyone who is going to be an enemy, at least not overtly and outwardly. But even then, not everybody's going to be hostile. There will be those who are receptive, those whom the Lord has prepared. Uh, Look at verse 40. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. Now, remember, they'll oppose them because they oppose Jesus. But there will be those who receive them because they receive Jesus. And by receiving them as his representatives, they're receiving Jesus. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then he goes on to list these these different groups. Whoever whoever receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. A righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Not exactly sure who Jesus is referring to, by the prophet, the righteous man, or the little one. Probably since he refers to his disciples directly in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, he's using some categories. The prophet, of course, we think of the Old Testament. Uh, Someone like Micah, whom we read earlier, who spoke for God. And there were those who received their message. There were those who opposed and rejected their message. But speaking for God, they were merely ambassadors. To reject their message was not just to reject Micah. It wasn't just to reject Isaiah or Jeremiah it was to reject the God for whom they spoke. You know, an ambassador speaks on, represents, speaks on behalf of his country. He represents his nation, his government. And so, probably here the idea of a prophet. If someone receives a prophet because he speaks for the living God. Uh, he'll receive a prophet's reward. The righteous man—it's sort of vague. Maybe uh, men in the Old Testament who were men who were righteous, or in their day, but not necessarily a prophet. Little ones could be any follower of Jesus, uh, any, any believer. And so representative uh, in these various categories, uh, as people receive them, they're receiving Jesus. Just as when they're hostile toward them, they're hostile toward Jesus. Well, Jesus is saying that the person who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet for my sake, in other words, will receive a reward, or a righteous man. Or, he says, even whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water, I mean the minimum, act of hospitality because he is a disciple. In other words, for Jesus' sake, because he, he, he represents Jesus, will receive or will by no means lose his reward. Now, there's a lot we could talk about here. Basically, um, Jesus is, is referring to someone, apparently, who is a believer or becomes a believer because they're receiving the representative for Jesus' sake because he's a prophet, because he's a righteous man, because he's one of my little ones, Uh, he is a disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. And so Jesus speaks these words to encourage the disciples that not everybody out there will be hostile. There will be those who receive them, and there will be those who receive their message, and even those who do the least in terms of hospitality toward them, the Lord notices that. Now, although it's not strictly within the the meaning of this passage, I think by extension we could say the same of us. That when we serve a brother or sister in Christ, simply because they're a brother or sister in Christ, the Father notices that. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his gaze. It's interesting that Jesus had been talking about the Father notices even a bird lighting on the ground, even numbering the hairs of our head. Well, even the gift of a cold water to a disciple of Jesus, because he is a disciple, the Father says, I noticed that, I see that. He won't lose his reward. That won't be lost in some bureaucratic shuffle, you know, a couple millennia from now. No, the Father knows, and the reward, the blessing is there. And so Jesus ends by saying, you know, with all this talk of persecution, with all this talk of hostility, remember, there will be those who receive you. There will be those who receive your message. And there will be those who will extend kindness to you because you were one of mine, and by extension, suggesting that they are one of his, or about to be one of his, and will receive that reward. And so as we've looked at this passage and looked at these verses particularly today, we need to recognize what Jesus said. The world is hostile to him, and therefore it will be hostile to us. This requires that we take a long-range perspective. It requires that we recognize that we're not living for this life only. Our perspective needs to be that of Lana, who uh, is experiencing the truth of these words in a very real and powerful way, but she puts it this way. She said, I'm in real danger, but I trust God because he is alive. My comfort is that it is only a short time I'm spending here on earth, but there will be a long time that I'll spend with him. We know there will come a time when there will be no more sorrow or suffering. This is our hope in the Lord Jesus, and we need to remember that as well. To Take a long-range view that we will be with Christ in glory. That is our hope in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we read these words and recognize that we have experienced so little in the way of real persecution violent persecution, and we thank you for that. But, Father, there are people, perhaps even here and certainly in our church, who have experienced alienation from family because of their faith in Christ, who have experienced suffering or persecution or harassment from co-workers or classmates because they are believers. And, Father, those things are very real, too, and painful also. We thank you for sparing us, Lord, the physical persecution, organized persecution, But, Father, we do recognize that it doesn't matter where we live or when we live. Christ is the same, and the world is the same, and the world will hate our Jesus. But, Father, give us wisdom to recognize that reality. Give us faith to be loyal to you. And, Father, we pray that you would bring us into contact with those people who are open and are receptive and become believers as well. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.